And now, a native podcast with Matt and Zach. And welcome back, everybody, to another a native podcast. I am one of the co-hosts, Zach, and with me, as always, is the other co-host, Matt. And I always got to start it off this way, Matt, buddy. How are we doing today? I'm doing pretty well, my man. We're we're approaching uh, middle middle of July here at this time of the year, recording it. Um, you know, sun's out, guns out, summer, <laughs> summer outdoors, fun in the sun, going to the river, mountains, just looking forward to all those kind of adventures. So exactly, you know, it is beautiful. It's getting hot, as you're saying. The sun's high. Wildfire season is upon us. We're seeing wildfires in places. Um, we're seeing people traveling, dumb tourons in Yellowstone doing crazy things. Um, <laughs> and the buffalo typical... petting season. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Come on now. Um, no, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. Uh, we're here to talk about Indian education, as you may have read in the title. Uh, we're going to dive into some of the history. We're going to talk about boarding schools. We're going to talk about uh, different uh, Indian acts passed along the way. We're going to get into tribal colleges, uh, no child left behind act. Uh, we're going to get into some recent legislation, some Title VI stuff. Uh, it's going to be a fun episode. We're going to we're going to talk about hopefully teach you a little bit along the way. You know, as we do this, we're learning too. You know, we're learning new things along the way um, as we do this. And, uh, Matt, I, I believe you have, um, a fun fact kind of for us today that kind of along these lines of learning something new. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we recently, um, a lot of us have heard about the affirmative action decision, uh, without being overturned, uh, you know, affirmative action for those who don't know is basically a government mandated government approved um, and, and and as well as voluntary private programs that grant special consideration to historically excluded groups uh, such as racial minorities or women. And these pro the, this basically was designed to increase access to education and employment. Right. So this will impact those two areas. So the thing that is concerning with tribes right now is that like public universities, for example, will limiting, you know, the, the, with that being overturned, it's just going off of like your grades, and your test scores. And, you know, you and I have talked about how, you know, standardized testing is, is not, um, it, it's culturally biased, essentially. Right. Well, and exactly. And how, you know, just the native struggle to, you know, we're not necessarily going to have the best grades, especially in our testing, because our schools aren't properly funded. Our, you know, school, you know, it's hard to get teachers in some of these places. You know, I, I, I was just up in Wolf Point for the 100th uh, Stampede. And, you know, you hear that you hear some of the conversations like, oh, they're going to move here. Oh, but they're all, they're only looking to rent. They're not looking to buy. So it's like, they're not here long term. They're not invested into the community. And you're, you're talking about like, teachers, doctors, you know, people in those type of jobs and positions in these places. And then you then you expect these kids who are already at a disadvantage, you know, because of issues like this, to compete with those at private schools whose parents are fucking riding the ass of the teachers and the principals and all that, you know, like, it's it's crazy to see that. But like, you also know that everyone comes from a different background and having those backgrounds at the table or having those ideologies or those ideas or those thoughts, you know, they come from all walks of life. So even in the college setting, that was known at one point, right? That to be able to, you know, no, we need people of diversity. Diversity makes us better. Um, and that's essentially what that, that did, you know, right? Yeah, and I know in, in, you know, the indigenous native community, the Hispanic and black communities as well, there's, there's big concern over what just happened there. And, uh, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see. And, and, on, and on top of that, you mentioned teachers as well. Teachers are some of the most underpaid across the board. Terrible, terrible. And so you, you can't get good teachers if you don't pay them, you know. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. And and it, it's it's that circle. And just, I mean, 
you look at some of these remote communities because of where the U.S. government put reservations, right? That's the other thing. We didn't choose the reservation land. That's where the U.S. government said, oh, we can't do anything with this. This is shitty land. This is bad land. Let the Indians live there. You know, all sorts of things like that. Um, yeah. That, you know, also stem, right? And, and that's those historical traumas we talk about, right? Yeah. Over time, that just how one thing kind of, you know, one domino hits the next domino. Um, and kind of like that today, you know, we're going to dive into uh, Indian education. And as Matt, you know, you talk about affirmative action. Um, you know, if you guys want to to talk to Matt, send us an email, send it to gng at gng.net. That is the letter G as in garden gnome, uh, the letter N as in gnome Alaska, the letter G again as in garden gnome at gng.net. It's pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, you could even ask us, we have these cool holographic stickers. We have regular stickers too, uh, some glitter stickers. So please hit us up. Uh, we'll send some out to you, uh, if you if you shoot it, shoot Matt an email. Um, and we'll get into the history today of education because education is one of those things that has changed throughout time, uh, especially in Indian country. It has changed through how we as Indian people have gone from not citizens uh, to becoming U.S. citizens, to being not able to vote, to vote, to this act, to that act. Like we've, there's a lot that has impacted uh, Indian education uh, throughout the years and to and brought it to where it is today. And I think, you know, when you look at today, you look at some of these tribal colleges offering doctorate programs, master programs, uh, full four-year degrees. That is awesome to see. So uh, just what what us Indians can do when we when we put our minds together and, and think good, you know, and try and do good for our communities as a whole. Um, anything to get us anything right off anything about healthcare or not healthcare uh, education today you'd like to talk about? Yeah, just just right off you you ended that statement with I'm looking at my sitting bull poster over here and it says, let us put our minds together and see what life we can make for our children. And that is a very, you know, a lot of people have heard that quote before, but that was a American Indian College Fund poster. Right. You know, and it was referring to, I think there's a Crow Chief that has something about education. Yeah, actually. Well. Yeah. Um, shit, I'm going to butcher his name because uh, <laughs> Chief Plenicoop. Thank you. I knew I Yeah, Chief Plenicoop. And you've been there, Chief Plenicoop State Park. Um, he had the vision, right, of the bison going away on the prairie and the cow coming up uh he spoke of getting the white man's education to be equal with the white man you know to fight that battle we have to learn his ways right um and that's again you know i hear reno in the back of my mind she's always <laughs> always saying that the courtrooms are the new battlefield you know, when you look at Indian lawyers and you look at Indian law and you look at a lot of what's happened, a lot of good what's happened, you know, it goes down to the, the lawyers and these treaties and these these things that have been passed within Indian country and our rights, our sovereign rights, because we are sovereign nations within this larger nation of the U.S., you know, and there are certain rights that are entitled because of that. You know, you can't just take land and have no, you know, con you know just for free, you know, it seemed that way and our treaties in the way the U.S. government violated, yeah, it seems like they took it for free, but that's why we're fighting for these rights now because no, it's a cost and this is what it's going to cost and we're going to keep fighting until, you know, I think forever because we're, we're, we're not definitely owed, you know, we're not getting what we're owed. <laughs> yeah, no, and it really, these, these figures, you know, Sitting Bull's quote, a Chief Plenty Coup, um, Charles Eastman, who was a Lakota doctor, who yep. there's a really good book called um, uh, Out of Out of the Wilderness or something, I believe. But it's about walking in two worlds. And they recognized at a really early years that you, you know, the world changed for Native people, but we have to learn the ways of the white man so we can beat him at his own game. <laughs> yeah, basically. No, basically. You know? And um, Jim Thorpe did that with athletics, with baseball, and I'm going to be better than them at their own game. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. And and I feel like there's a lot of Natives who think that, you know, and and sometimes we take that too far. And I, I've seen it internally oh, yeah. where we fight ourselves internally when, when in reality, we need to be thinking who the common enemy is. You know, we as Indian people, you know, the way we can unite and get behind all this and get behind our our histories and our our understandings of like 
what is needed to be done to save our culture and to save our our land and get our land back because i think there are ways we can manage our land you know like the u.s forest service and some government agencies are already underfunded and have places that could be transitioned over to tribes and let tribes run it for their own economical you know resources and reasonings there's no reason the u.s needs to be doing that um as we speak man one acre at a time if that's what it takes (laughs) right no exactly i am I am with you, man. I am actually also not talking about that today because that is, <laughs> we got we to gotta get the land back podcast on that's, that's talk about some of the land back. But today we are talking education and I'm going to dive right into it. Uh, I found a really good resource online. I thought it was kind of a cool little like timeline thing um, that kind of helped me go along and helped me kind of structure today's uh, kind of topic of the education. It was called Ed- Education Week. So they did a thing about Native American uh, education and kind of like a historical timeline. So they talk about the mission schools because the mission schools are what started kind of schools out here, especially out in the West, out in the education. So in 1819, Congress passed the Indian Civilization Act, which authorized up to $10,000 a year to support the efforts of religious groups and interested individuals willing to live among and teach Indians. The act led many to found so-called mission schools, which increased in number until federal officials stopped providing direct funding for them until the end of the 19th century. Some mission schools continue to operate today. Um, And then I, I, I found this article on study master or study smarter.us uh, and it's about the history of these mission schools, right? So when you get into the history, right? They started establishing, you know, you hear like the father de Smet, all these different guys coming out West, converting the natives. Um, Pompey's pillar, I have a really cool picture uh, on one of my Instagrams. It's deep, you got to dig deep. Um, and it uh, it's of a native man kneeling down to a cross on Pompey's pillar. And it's on the rock in an area where only like us park rangers could get to. Like you step off the boardwalk to get there and it's like behind bushes and stuff, um, which is really cool. And you got to be careful because there's like bobcat dens and like rattlesnakes and stuff right. like, you, you know, so it's like, you just got to know. Um, but so they came out West, you know, and they were starting these schools. In 1860, the Office of Indian Affairs, now the Bureau of Indian Affairs, established the first missionary school on the Yakima Indian Reservation in the state of Washington. Well-meaning reformers from the East believed that missionary schools like this one would help Native American children assimilate into white culture. Colonel Richard Henry Pratt believed that missionary schools off of reservations would be better suited for assimilation purposes. In 1879, he founded the Carlisle Indian School, the first off-reservation missionary school in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. While the Carlisle Indian School was the only of its kind in the East, many off-reservation schools popped up in the West throughout the 1880s. Um, As we know, the aim of missionary schools was assimilation. Education then was the method. Upon their arrival at missionary schools, Native American boys had to cut their tribal braids off and girls had to cut their hair short. They wore uniforms that had no hint of traditional tribal wear and they had to take on white names. Teachers required that the children speak English even amongst each other. Classes were meant to remove any hint of the children's heritage and prepare for them in a life of white society. And of course, there were English classes, but there are also classes directly aimed at attacking Native American culture. These included lessons on the nuclear family and the importance of the individual over the collective. These were also religious classes that attempted to convert children into Christianity. In history classes, Native American children learned about and were forced to celebrate white holidays that had roots in oppressing of indigenous peoples, such as Thanksgiving and Columbus Day. Although they didn't did spend time on typical academics, there was a large emphasis on non-academic skill-based classes. The young girls learned domestic skills such as sewing and cooking, whereas the young boys learned trade skills such as blacksmithing and how to farm. In reality, missionary schools were a traumatic experience for the Native American children that were forced to attend. The schools had military-like structure and punishments were particularly cruel, even for some, something small as speaking in their native language. 
These punishments included restriction of food, confinement, loss of privilege, and even corporal pressurement in addiction to in addition to punishments. The children faced outbreaks of disease and abuse of all kinds. And we know there's graveyards that they're finding at these schools and at these churches. So they're killing them too. And I like, you watch on Paramount Plus 1883, no, 1923, which is the sequel to 1883. It they do a good job with, I think, demonstrating the boarding school and how cruel the nuns were to these kids. And personally, I think they play it down. I think it was a lot worse. When you, when you like, even you meet like Catholic nuns who are like in their 90s now, like they're still mean old bats. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like well, I'm sure these OGs from like the 1880s were just bitches, man. You know, like. They were Nurse Ratchet from One for Over the Cuckoo's Nest. They were, yeah. you know, they were, uh, but that series, that part where they show that girl, I think that has come to the, the closest of any series I've seen to what the reality was like. Um, I think it showed it, showed it all, you know. I think it, I think they play it down though. I think it was worse. I think the beatings were worse. I think they, like, they thought in their minds that, us natives were savages out on the prairie, out on the plains, right? They thought we were this uncivilized culture, which we weren't. There's there's so much that proves that we weren't. And like, they just beat it out of us. You know, they thought, they thought like Christianity is weird and crazy in the sense, you know, I grew up, I went to a Catholic school. I went to church twice a week, you know, like we read the Bible. We read the, the Mormon book, uh, the Book of Mormon, uh, we read the Quran all in religion classes. Like we, 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 we kind of were forced to study these things, but also like with that lens of how Catholicism was superior, right? Right. And just how they kind of teach it and beat it down your throat and almost skip over what Jesus is actually teaching, right? Where he is teaching like the native way of like, let's just live in harmony, live right. in peace, live and let be, you know, like respect one another various things like that you know so they manipulated that and how religion gets manipulated and just used to just torture kids and uh, oh, religion so religion played a huge role in this whole process of assimilating oh, it, native and, and and the the california mission system which you know you know who i'm thinking of well, on that topic we need to have a podcast right. no and uh but well my grandpa gray right mm -hmm. his dad Okay, one of the main role models in my life, you know, I look at like, like I said, my grandpa Gray, right? His dad, I there's a picture that we have of his dad on the fucking front steps of a boarding school in his haircut, in his little suit. And I know like that just makes me sick to my stomach sometimes. I know if I feel that way, my dad and grandpa probably feel that way. And I look at like my grandpa who worked at Chamawa boarding school in the 1990s, you know, doing what he could do to better Indian education from his lens. Right. Because you look at like the fact that like we as Indian people have been just fighting for like, hey, we want a fair chance at this thing. That's all. We, and that's all we are and have been doing. And starting to get, you know, especially as we entered this the new millennia, you know, the 2000s, we really started to see that push of more native doctors, more native people getting masters, more native people graduating from high school, graduating from college. Like we're 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 starting that and it's starting to happen and it's great. Um this quote right here, this one got me, you know, because we go back to like what was happening to those kids in those boarding schools, right? The martyrs, the true martyrs, you know, you hear about Catholic martyrs, all that. Here's some native martyrs for you. I remember one evening when we were all lined up in a room and one of us boys said something in Indian to another boy. The man in charge of us pounced on the boy, caught him and the shirt, threw him across the room. Later, we found out that his collarbone was broken. Lone Wolf, 1894. Uh, classes were so focused on assimilation that the actual academic topics did not receive much attention. The teachers expected the children to use domestic, the, use the domestic and trade skills they spent so much time on to do the majority of work and upkeep for the school. The placing out system was particularly terrible and, and exploitive in 
an innovation that forced select students to live within the white society for a certain period of time. There, there these children often found themselves doing unpaid labor, basically slaves. They, they servants. They made these right. kids servants for people. Wow. Uh, on a small scale, Native American children resisted their imprisonment in missionary schools by running away, but their parents all also resisted the schools in any way they could in attempt to keep and protect their children. During times when agents were rounded up, children, some children, some families would temporarily leave the reservation. Others would pretend to play hide and seek so that children were out of sight. In some instances, entire tribes joined together in refusing to send their children's children to the missionary schools. The Office of Indian Affairs would respond by withholding rations. And if that was not successful, their agency police force was not below imprisoning adults and kidnapping children. Okay, and there you see why we don't like cops as much. Right. It's all it's all tied all together. Slave catchers. It's all tied together, man. It's like it was it really educating kids or was it just brainwashing assimilation right here? <laughs> exactly. In in the rare cases that schools allowed children to go home during breaks, their parents tried to instill them in as much of their culture as possible so that the school could not take it away from them. They also encouraged children to run away. Uh, while most of the missionary schools closed in the mid-1930s due to reports of their abuse and their overall ineffectiveness, it was not until the Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978 that parents finally had choice in whether they wanted their children to attend a missionary school or not. That's that's if, pretty recent. That's 50 years ago. Oh. That's our parents' yeah. generation. Uh, for the most part, children who attended missionary schools experienced horrific treatment, as well as a full-on assault of their culture, leaving an entire generation traumatized. A large number of children also died as a result of the abuse and rapid spread of disease. In many cases, the schools buried them in mass unmarked graves. Um, Here's a quote, the health of the school has 120 students has been exceptionally good during the year. Four girls and one boy, uh, the latter an infant have died here. Christian civilization, civilization is the best therapeutic for the Indian. M.M. Waldron, school physician, report on health at the Hampton Agricultural and Industrial School of Virginia, 1886. Some key takeaways that, that there are. Um, the Office of Indian Affairs created the first missionary school in 1860, um, and the first off-reservation school happened in 1879. Uh, by the 1880s, missionary schools were a widespread and common goal of assimilating Native American children into white society, society via education. Uh, missionary schools had many rules and lessons to rid children of their heritage and culture. The schools had a military-like structure with cruel punishments. Many children died as a result of abuse and outbreaks of disease, and those who survived were traumatized. It was not until the 1978, during the Indian Child Welfare Act, that parents could refuse to send their children to missionary schools. Um, some facts about that. In 1900, there were 20,000 Native children in boarding schools. Uh, in 25 years later, that climbed to 60,000. Um, in 1926, 83% of Indian school-aged children were attending boarding schools, some on and off reservation, so that's a lot. Um, there were 367 boarding schools in 29 states. 73 of those remain in operation today, 15 of which are boarding schools. Um, boarding schools were established by 14 different uh, like religious denominations. Uh, Catholics, Presbyterians, and Quakers were the most common. Um, and kind of as that historical trauma, right, we talked about those rates, only 65% of Native students graduate high school. That is the lowest among all races in the U.S., um, which is very common when you see a lot of, lot of stuff with, like, Native stuff. You know, like, they like to throw, like, Hispanic or Black, typically, yeah. like, top, but it's like, Bro, we're number one. I'm sorry, natives. Well, you know the, the U.S. fucked us in many ways. Well, and that's the that goes back to that distrust from those early schools. That then the then the trauma. That's like, well, the grandparents and the parents like are like not prioritizing school because they had such a terrible experience with it. You know, 
Right. Well, and and there was so many things coming to, you know, you, you look at the 1920s, the Industrial Revolution, uh, the Great Depression, everything kind of leading up to that and going on. And now music on a native podcast. This week, Chubby Cree, Rock Your World. And this this also comes from that uh, progressive education Ed Week uh, ad uh, it, or ad uh, article. In the 1920s, federal policy towards Indian schools comes under increasing fire as Indian reservations remained mirrored in poverty. In 1928, an independent investigation of the Indian Office by the Brookings Institution, known as the Miriam Report, and published by the Johns Hopkins Press, sharply criticizes the quality of education provided by the government-run Indian schools. The report is especially critical of vocational education programs, which it says are used to provide student labor to help keep the schools running and save the government money. The report calls for more child-centered and cultural appropriate education in keeping with then the current philosophy of progressive education. So that kind of spread to the 1934 Indian New Deal. The progressive education approaches expands under the Indian Reorganization Act, which passes in 1934 during President FDR's administration, commonly known as the Indian New Deal. The law grants certain rights to Native Americans. Um, and then the Library of Congress kind of goes into this and kind of talks about uh, what happened in those, you know, in those acts. Uh, previously, the Dawes Act in 1887 had shaped U.S. policy towards Native Americans in accordance with its terms and hoping to turn Indians into farmers. The federal government redistributed tribal lands to the head of families in 160-acre allotments. Unclaimed or surplus land was sold, and the proceeds used to establish Indian schools, where non-Native American ch children, where Native American children learned reading, writing, and domestic and social systems of white America. By 1932, the scale both of unclaimed land and allotted acreage resulted in the loss of two-thirds of the 138 million acres that Native Americans held prior to the Dawes Act. In addition to the extension of voting rights to Native Americans, the Secretary of Interior commissioned the Institute of Government Research to assess the impact of Dawes Act. Uh, completed in 1928, the Miriam Report described how government policy oppressed Native Americans and destroyed their culture and society. The poverty and exploitation resulting from the paternalistic Dawes Act spurred passage of the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act. This legislation, uh, promoted Native American autonomy by prohibiting the allotment of tribal lands, returning some surplus land, and urging tribes to engage in active self-government, rather than imposing legislation on the Native Americans. Individual tribes were allowed to accept or reject the Indian Reorganization Act from 1934 to 1953. 
the U.S. government invested in development of infrastructure, healthcare, education, and the quality of life on Indian lands to improve. With aid of federal courts and the government, over 2 million acres of land were returned to various tribes. Uh, from the U.S. National Archives, the 1933 Indian New Deal, or the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act, in the 1930s, the effort, in an effort to redeem by the hardships Native Americans had faced under the U.S. Policy Commissioner of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, John Collier took advantage of the reformist spirit of Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, and his presidency to change the course of U.S.-American Indian relations. American Indian policy in the late 1800s undermined Native culture by forcing Native Americans to assimilate into European-American lifestyle. Native children were taken away from their families at a young age to off-reservation Indian boarding schools. Moreover, the Dawes Act of 1887 instituted the practice of allotment, the division of tribal land into personal tax, which disabled Native communal life. Collier, a prominent activist for Native American rights, was well aware of the negative effects these policies had on Native American communities. In 1923, Collier became the Secretary of, of the Indian Defense Association, IDA, during his tenure at IDA, the Institute for Government Research released the Merriam Report, uh, which detailed the poor condition of tribal economics under the utter destruction under Indian under the Indian country. According to the report, that the average national per capita of income in 1920 was $1,350, while the average Native American made was only $100 a year, 13 oh. times less. Wow. The Indian New Deal also forwarded the cause of American of Native American education. Uh, curricular committees serving Native Americans began to incorporate the languages and customs that had been documented by the government-funded anthropologists in their newly bilingual syllabi. While the government continued to mandate that Native Americans attend federal schools, it subsided the creation of 100 community day schools on tribal lands. The Johnson-O'Malley Act of 1934, which Collier helped steer through Congress, offered the state's federal dollars to support the Native American education, healthcare, and agricultural assistance programs. Uh, so the John Collier, John O'Malley Act authorizes the U.S. Secretary of the Interior to enter into contracts with states and territories to pay for the education of uh, Indian students. Um, since 1891, federal officers had worked through individual contracts with school districts. Today, in addition to receiving JOM funding, public schools can obtain federal impact aid to help support the education of Native American students who live on non-taxable Indian land. Impaid, impact aid also provides support to districts that serve students from military bases or other land not subject to local and state property taxes. Um, in addition, to the, the Indian New Deal began the closing of the boarding schools when native children had been sent to their, sent to unlearn their traditional ways. It facilitated, and then that facilitated the 100 community day schools, which were built on tribal lands that hired anthographers to create school lessons within tribal languages. Um, and that kind of, that's kind of like how those transitioned back into the hands of natives and they you know kind of get and run and and slowly build that i mean those are the beginning the beginning days right right and still well, very underfunded and oh, yeah. in the best condition back then yeah and that's where you know those bie schools are are some of the worst condition ones that you know that are under that umbrella right right <laughs> so it's uh some things haven't changed a lot it's crazy to think about like some of these schools in those more remote reservations, it's like, wow, like. Yeah, really what, what, what's crazy. changed, you know, in the, in the mindsets too, because we forget like those, where do those negative mindset people go? Do they necessarily go back to DC or are they local to those communities, right? You know, you take like South Dakota, North Dakota, Eastern Montana, Wyoming, you take some of those like white communities around the reservations or even on the reservations and how, they have hundred year histories, 200 year, you know, not 200 year histories, but like in some of those areas, they've been there forever and they've been having those issues forever, you know? Um, so it's interesting, but like, I, I look like at like some of the fun, you know, it makes sense where it's like, where some of the funding comes from too, because of some of these historical things, right. Where it's like, Oh, that's why the office of interior takes care of this. You know, it comes through that. 
Um, which, which then, you know, if you go along the history, right, what's next is Head Start. You see a lot of Head Start programs, right? And the Georgia, uh, the history, georgia.gov has a history, a good history of Head Start and kind of explains it. Uh, in 1964, the federal government asked a panel of children developers, uh, experts to draw up a program to help communities meet the needs of disadvantaged preschool children. The panel report became the blueprint for the Project Head Start. Project Head Start launched as an eight-week summer program by the Office of Economic Opportunity in 1965, and it was designed to help break the cycle of poverty by providing preschool children of low-income families with a comprehensive program to meet their emotional, social, nutritional, and physiological needs. Recruiting children age three to school entry age, Head Start was enthusiastically received by the nation. Child development specialists, community leaders, parents across the nation, Head Start serves, uh, serves children and their families each year in urban and rural areas in all 50 states, D.C., Puerto Rico, and the U.S. territories, including many Indian American Indian vet and migrant children. Um, in 1969, Head Start was transferred to the Office of Economic Opportunity to the Office of Child Development in U.S. Health, in the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, and has now become the Office of Head Start within the Administration of Children and Families in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Health Start grants were awarded to the regional offices of Head Start and, and the Office Head Start's American Indian and Alaska Native and Migrant and Seasonal program branches directly to local public agencies, private organizations, and Indian tribes and school systems for the purpose of operating Head Start programs at the community level. Although Head Start is thought to be one program by much of the public, Head Start is actually consistent of two programs, Head Start and Early Head Start. Head Start is comprehensive early childhood development program, primarily serving low-income preschool-aged children and their families, while Early Head Start was established during the 1994 reauthorization of Head Start, Early Head Start is a comprehensive early childhood program serving primarily low-income children, parental to age three, pregnant women, and their families. Um, it, uh, so kind of also going on during this time in 1966, uh, following the founding of the United Nations, uh, advocates press for allowing the colonized peoples of the world to chart their own destinies, while ultimately inspires American Indian communities. In 1966, Rough Rock Demonstration School opens up on the Navajo uh, mm -hmm. Nation in Arizona as the first Indian-controlled school in modern times. Um, in 1969, a national tragedy, the U.S. Senate subcommittee releases a national tragedy, a national challenge, with reports, it brings renewed attention to the native education leading the passage of the Indian Education Act of 1972 and the 1975 Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act. Here, Senator Walter Mondale, Senator Edward Kennedy, Senator Peter Dominic share their findings at a news conference. They say, they say federal efforts provide American Indians with quality education have been marked near total failure. The current iteration of Indian Education Act pro provides funding for special programs to help Indian students on and off reservations. In 1970, uh, survival schools. The American Indian movement in Minneapolis and elsewhere opens a few small schools to provide an alternative to public and Bureau of Indian Affairs, now BIE schools, uh, with high dropout rates, known as survival schools for their focus on basic learning and living schools. These schools strongly promote Indian culture. Today, some Indian groups are using charter school funding to operate schools that teach curriculum based on place, culture, and community, also known as immersion schools. Right. Uh, there's one in Albuquerque I know of. There's a couple in Alaska. Um, they're, they're cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, I was going to add um, some stuff on the Indian Education Act. Yeah. Go for I, it. Um, and I know, uh, thank you for mentioning the year 1972 right. was passed. And it's always interesting because the 60s and 70s, a lot came out of that activism for right. lots of people and for Native peoples, no different. Um, but just a short description here of what the, it, it's listed as Title Seven on the BIE website here, but I know some schools, they call it Title Six. they have 
So I, I'm not sure the reasoning with the numbers there, but this is from the BIE, it's calling it Title VII. Part A is Indian education supports the efforts to meet the unique educational and culturally related academic needs of American Indian and Alaska Native students to assist them in meeting the same challenging state student academic achievement standards as other students. The second part to this, formula grants to local educational agencies supports local educational agencies in their effort to reform elementary school and secondary school programs that serve Indian students to ensure that such programs, one, are, des are based to challenge based on challenging state academic content and student achievement standards that are used for all students. Number two, are designed to assist Indian students in meeting those standards. And so those are kind of the two basic parts to it. Um, these schools that have these programs, they have higher percentage Native students. So like, for example, the Oklahoma list I saw a while back, they were give or take roughly around 20% of the school district that would be native and up. And right. so you you won't see these programs in every schools unless they have a larger percentage. So right. And and that yeah and that funding right comes from the funding. All. Yeah. Um and then in 1979, in accordance to Head Start, the National Indian Head Start Directors Association was formed. And it was established to create an organized force for Indian Head Start programs and the children and families they serve. The areas in which the Air association focuses its work include advocating for federal and legislative and regulatory improvements so that early childhood development and education services are culturally appropriate, relevant, and providing management training opportunities for program directors and management staff to local programs and build leadership capacity of local programs. Um, and the mission essentially is to stand strong and preserve the identity of American Indian and ch children and their families, um, which a lot of these organizations are, you know, especially since they're being publicly funded or government funded, you know, they have to crop, you know, check the boxes, as we say, when government lingo, you know, they have to be able to make sure they, they cross everything off along the way and what they are promised to do as they should, as they um, should do. Um, the next thing is you kind of talked about the Indian Self-Determination Act, correct? Uh, I mine that was the Indian Education Act, but you can go ahead if you have something. Well, this is part of the Indian Self-Determination okay. and Education <laughs> Assistance Act, right, of 1970. Okay. Um, the, after the termination policies of the 1950s, a renewed paternalism toward American Indians took over government policy, but a turnaround began to take place in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, in 1970, Richard Nixon told Congress that the federal government should begin to recognize and build upon the capacities and insights of the Indian people. In 1975, after much debate, Congress passed the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act. The government could now con do contracts with tribal governments and federal services. The act rejuvenated tribal governments by admitting, rejecting, and countering the previous paternalistic policies. Native American people were now able to operate their own schools. Since this act was passed, more than 70 schools have taken charge of their own operations. Native Americans now have the chance to take control of their own education by bringing their own languages, beliefs, and philosophies to their schools. Um, did you know there's a new Native apparel company? No, I did not. It's called Shop LS 574, named after the 574 federal tribes and the Little Shell descendancy of its founders. Wow, that's really cool, man. It is. It is becoming a spot to order Native apparel by and for Natives, working with Native designers and teams to help best represent Indian country. That's awesome, dude. For sure. Now make sure to go pick up some A Native podcast swag as well as other Native gear while shopping at shopls574.com. Oh, yeah. And do not forget to use code ANP10 to save on your next order. That's ANP10. Hey, Matt, did you know there's a tribally owned net company? No, I did not. Not only are they tribally owned, but Blue Ribbon Nets also creates totally sustainable products. With Blue Ribbon Nets, not only are you getting quality nets, but even eco-friendly ones as well. That's awesome, dude. It sure is indeed. Make sure to use code RUGARU10 on your next Blue Ribbon Net 
order to save. Again, the code is Rugaru10. R-U-G-A-R-U-1-0. I am definitely getting a blue ribbon net now. Tune in every Tuesday to hear your favorite native podcast. That's right. A Native Podcast has new episodes every week, ranging from boarding schools to Indian child welfare. Not only that, but we have Indian country covered from Maine to California and Florida to Alaska, Hopi to Blackfeet and Choctaw to Clinkett, and all those Crees in between. And all you other natives and non-natives out there, we want to remind you to tune in this Tuesday to A Native Podcast. Is your res runner in need of new lights? Well, look no further than our friends at Oxteo, an industry leader in LED lights. Make sure to use code RUGARU on your next set of lights. That's R-U-G-A-R-U. So that's kind of the some of the histories, right? Well, and then <laughs> we got one more. <laughs> the tribal colleges, right? You yeah. got to throw them in there. They get established. They start off as two-year schools, a lot of them. They get going on educations. And I, I'm excited because I, I know this is another uh, interview we'll get here on a Native podcast coming in the future. So we hope to get some tribal college people uh, exactly. to talk about what they do and what, what they're about. Because these things yeah. have really, when you talk about Indian education, have become a pillar of Indian education. It's very helpful for kids on reservations. If you're wanting to pursue you know, maybe a public university or something, but you're not quite ready to once you graduate high school. You can go to a two-year, you know, tribal college and get a couple years under your belt and then move on to make that next step, you know, and ready yourself for that next level. Um, I was going to add real quick. Go ahead. That, go uh, ahead. Th that's only with tribal colleges, that's only going to like, their enrollment's just going to go up with that affirmative action decision as well. And that's going yeah. to drive tribal colleges bigger. They're getting right. because of that. Well, like I want to say, I just saw Navajo is now offering uh doctorate. You can go yeah. to a doctorate down there. Uh some of them offer full four-year degrees, some of them offer master's degrees. Right. And then uh, those ones too that are interesting are like Haskell and uh, Northwest Indian College, where they're they're not run by one tribe. They're like a larger Fort Lewis college in Colorado. There's a few interesting ones that way too, that are for kind of all natives. Right. Um, so it'd be interesting, the growth of those as well, I could see definitely happening more. Right. Well, and and, and we are seeing it. I mean, they are developed. You look at tribal colleges the way they are growing and developing. Um, and there, you go to the uh, Tribal College Journal. That's a good resource. Yeah. Uh, the Art Institute in Santa Fe, great resource for tribal colleges. Yeah. Um, but I, I found on bestcolleges.com, right? That's a good resource. <laughs> Uh, they they have a, what is a tribal college? Well, tribal college oh. university are post secondary schools run by tribal governments, according to NCES. Tribal college and universities (TCUs) enrolled nearly seventeen thousand students in the fall of two thousand sixteen, including more than thirteen thousand Indigenous students. So some of them have non-native students attending as well. Um, in 1968, the Navajo Nation established Diné College as the first tribally controlled college in the U.S. before tribal colleges existed. Many Native Americans and Alaska Natives were either shut out of higher education or forced into boarding schools that suppressed indigenous practices and knowledge. These forced education programs punished assimilation over preservation. Tribal leaders across the country demanded self-determination and indigenous education. The American Indian Higher Education Consortium, AHEC, Founded in 1973, advocates for the growing number of tribal colleges and universities. Another great, AHEC is another great example. Yeah. Um, tribal colleges grant associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctorate degree, as we know. Uh, they aim to protect Native culture and encourage Indigenous students to earn degrees. According to Penn Center for Minority Serving Institutions, several tribal colleges and universities also rank among the fastest growing community colleges, and TCUs enroll students from more than half of all federally recognized tribes. So there's a lot of people attending that. Um, and then not only did tribal colleges help, but there's been some legislation, some recent legislation in years that has come up that I think is worth talking about uh, today. And one of those is, is in 1990, Congress passed the Native American Languages Act, declaring a federal policy to preserve, protect, and promote the rights and freedoms of Native Americans to use, practice, and develop their languages. 
Uh, similar efforts have been made under the Indian New Deal and the Bilingual Education Act of 1968. Following the lead of Maori and New Zealand and Native Hawaiians, some Native language immersion schools began teaching their tribal languages, uh, which we talked about before. And that's definitely something that's good to see. That's where some funding is coming from. So that's why you're seeing more of these schools pop up. That's why you're seeing more like uh, language preservation programs uh, in tribes pop up. Um, and then in 2006, they passed the Esther Martin Native American Language Preservation Act, uh, which it, it amends the Native American Programs Act of 1974 to provide for the re revitalization of Native American languages through Native American immersion and restoration programs. ANA funding provides opportunities to assess, plan, and develop and implement projects to ensure their survival and continuing vitality of native languages. We encourage language applicants to involve elders and community members in determining proposed language projects, goals, and implementing project activities. Um, ANA typically provides funding for native languages in two program activities, native language preservation and maintenance, um, which provides funding for projects to support at assessments of the status of native languages in the established community, as well as the planning, designing, and restoration and implementing of a native language curriculum and education projects to support a communion, community's language preservation goals. Um, the Esther Martinez Immersion Program um, supports the development of self-determining, healthy, culturally, and linguistically vibrant, self-sufficient Native American communities. This funding opportunity announcement is focused on community-driven projects designed to revitalize the Native American languages to ensure the survival and continuing vitality of these languages and the culture of native peoples for future generations. Immersion and restoration grant funding is awarded in accordance with the Esther Martinez Native American Languages Preservation Act of 2006. Um, the initiative provides funding to support three-year projects being implemented by Native American language nest survival schools and restoration programs. Um, that kind of led led us to even um, the No Child Left Behind Act, which Congress passed in 2001, um, which was a revision, re revision of the Elementary and Second Education Act in putting apart uh, the relatively low academic achievement of minority students, including American Indians. Since the law's adoption, achievement has risen for every student group except American Indians, so it didn't benefit us. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Interesting. So that was interesting. But the last kind of thing I want to talk, do you have, I guess, do you have anything real quick that you want to talk about before? Yeah. I want to get into this thing that was signed by uh, President Biden and, and just as, just this uh, January 2023. Um, I was looking at my notes here. I mean, we kind of covered a lot of what, what I had here. Um, but, you know, I think overall to some something one thing here that i have is uh we've seen which this this could be a podcast in itself right. is the issue with um you know there, there's more obviously more native students you know graduating high school and going to college the regalia issue that comes up with these school districts is right. uh, is a hot topic as you know but it's really they're showing their pride of who they are but also like being proud of like educate, you know, being educated, but also being native. And, and that's an issue. A lot of groups are fighting that now pretty hard, but. Oh yeah. I think you saw Oklahoma make a stance for it. You know, I kind of wish I would have fought to wear like an Eagle feather at my right. Because my dad was like, do you want one? And I was like, yeah, but then I asked the school and the school said no. And I just kind of was like, ah, I'll respect the school. Wasn't, wasn't worth the fight, but you also See, went to Catholic. Like... See, and that's the thing now, like nowadays, like, older Zach's like fuck I wish I would have fought it you know <laughs> what I mean right but right. like back then like you know you're going to school with those kids those people you know your principals your vice principals your teachers like you respect them right like that that I'm not going to knock my cat my education at all it was a very good education very respectable people along the way the whole way right but just like now it's like something like that like i wish they would they would they as a institution would would understand that now it's at the institutional level where they're changing to be made 
Yeah, um, exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, and it's good to see that there are some states standing up for that. There are people standing up for that. So it's good. Um, so this one, this kind of law um, goes in. This is the Updated Language Revitalization Act. Uh, and this article comes from Cherokee, Cherokee Phoenix because this stems from the Cherokee language kind of program. This is kind of where that law is kind of just, they keep updating these language preservation laws uh, is what it seems like to me. And Joe Biden signed this one into law. Um, this, I want to say it was January, 2023. Um, the Bipartisan Native American Language Resource Center Act will help support Native American language schools and programs according to its sponsors. Native speaker-led language programs have proven to that culturally-based instruction is key to revitalizing and maintaining Indigenous knowledge and traditions. U.S. Senator and Chairman of the Senate Community of Indian Affairs, Brian Scat Scratz, said, well, there's no R. It looks like there should be an R. His name is Scatz, C-A-S-C-H-A-T-Z. I'm, I'm thinking there should be an R in there. Oh, wow. <laughs> the Native American Language Resource Center will build upon this grassroots momentum to support native language programs and schools by providing them with resources they need to continue to thrive. The Durban Feeling Native American Language Act, also signed into law, will direct the president to review the federal agency's compliance with the Native American Language Act requirements and make recommendations to improve interagency coordination in support of Native American languages. It will also authorize federal survey of native language use and the unmet needs of language revitalization programs every five years. In January 9 statement, Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. thanked President Biden for signing the acts into law for their support and length of the language efforts. Hoskin also applauded Schatz and Lisa Murkowski, along with First Lady Jill Biden, who visited the Cherokee Immersion School in December 2021. During her visit, Dr. Biden said that as a writing teacher, I've always believed that language is not just a collection of words. It helps us tell the story of our culture and our traditions, containing the wisdom of the world that only we know. It is a thread weaving through our past, present, and future. The ability to speak our own truth in our own words is power. Hoskins said the new legislation will go far to promote and preserve the Cherokee identity, heritages, and traditions. The Durban Feeling Native American Language Act is named after the late Cherokee linguist who was instrumental in having Cherokee syllabary added to word processing technology in the 1980s and who began the processing process of adding Cherokee language on UNOS, Unicode, which today allows smartphones to offer the Cherokee syllabary. He also developed hundreds of Cherokee language teaching materials that remain in use by speakers today. My friend Durbin Feeling was the largest contributor to the Cherokee language since Sequoia and his unwavering commitment to Cherokee language preparation will be the foundation upon which the Cherokee nation teaches future generations to honor and carry Cherokee traditions. Hoskins said the Durban Feeling Native American Language Act speaks to everything Durban stood for and will build upon his years of work to breathe a new life into the Cherokee language. We are proud to support the bill and the Native American Language Resource Center Act, and we are delighted to see them become law. The Cherokee Nation recently opened a 52,000 square foot Durban Feeling Language Center in Tahlequah. It houses the entire CN language department, including the Cherokee Immersion Charter School, the Cherokee Language Master Apprentice Program, the Cherokee Translation Language Technology Curriculum Development, and Community Language Departments. The Language Center was funded through the tribe's own Durban Feeling Language Preservation Act of 2019. It is estimated there are fewer than 2,000 fluent Cherokee speakers remaining. Um, and the Native News Online gave a quote, Cherokee Nation's leadership in language revitalization is not only producing results here at home, but inspiring efforts across the Indian country. As evidence of the new federal law, we are also inspiring our champions in Congress. We can point back to our landmark tribal statute and the Cherokee Nation Durban Feeling Language Preservation Act of 2019 as an elevate as elevating the cause of indigenous language preservation across the United States. So that's kind of, you know, that and that's just going to open up more doors for these tribal schools, you know, like, it makes me ask the question, will you see like a Browning High School in, in Browning, Montana, you know, what start applying for funds to teach 
you know, language courses or have those language for, you know, are, are we going to start, you know, like a Wolf Point High School, you know, it's on the reservation, it's a public Montana high school on the reservation in, in uh, Wolf Point there, you know what I mean? So how does that translate? You know, we're in, we're in year one of that. So what does year two, year three, year four, year five look like? Because there's those programs and those, those grants and that money grows, right? And how we, as Indian country, take advantage of those and grow from those and use those to help us build what we need to build to, you know, cement our culture and our, our people, you know, right. I think it's important. Yeah. And they're starting young, you know, the Head Start programs are doing language and culture and it's like their minds are like sponges when they're kids, you know, oh, so it's the best awesome. time to do it. It's the best time to do it. So, well, and it's, it's good to know. And it's, we should be calling things, you know, you talk about language, you talk about like Denali getting named back, you know, it was Mount McKinley. It used to right. be, Denali, right. So it's like, let's, call those things out you know why not like it had a name beforehand you know um exactly like i want to say i think wapatoa right isn't that uh rapid city like the place of the water and something like that something something like that yeah yeah so it's like you basically called it the same thing in english but why not (laughs) call it what it was because you translate you know like you made us make it into a european uh latin kind of written form you know like that's one interesting thing too about our languages right is we wrote like you look at like Cree and Ojibwe and like different like how they have the triangles and the designs right like we're not Latin based our languages right so they try and translate them almost to like a Latin way or write them out that way and it's it's weird but that's a whole nother episode that's not what we got we're kind of full on time today we probably chewed your ear off with a bunch of education thing but again we got to know our histories we got to teach us the right histories we got to explore these right histories together because they are important you know me and matt do this in the kindness of our hearts we do this in our free time uh just kind of doing something we realize that like is missing out there you know you don't get a lot of people talking about native america as a whole you have a lot of people talking about you know good their regions or their tribe or their you know different part within Indian country, which is so cool, but there's there's not a lot of people talking about the wholeness of that. So we want to share with you that so you get a better understanding of where, you know, all 574 federal tribes are coming from, where the state tribes are coming from, where uh, opinions may differ, or those specific things you may think are general about Native Americans aren't true. You know, we just here to give you that education that uh, the U.S. history books didn't teach you, you know. That's the other thing too. I find funny. You look at some of those history books and those uh, school textbooks. Look who sponsors them. Look who pays to have oh. them printed. Oil companies, yeah. uh, big, you know, like all these big money, dark money organizations are paying for stuff like that. And Rita Texas comes to mind with their school textbooks when you say oil money. And no, they, I think that state really erased Native history. And there's natives exactly. that <laughs> there are a lot of natives there. Yeah, you're telling me there's what, like two tribes basically there? Yeah, right. In that state that fucking big. (laughs) But yeah, like Big Bend National Park, basically an oasis in the desert. You know what I mean? Like, how many people didn't live there? Come on now. Um, But you got to learn it. You got to teach it. Um, Matthew, any final words for uh, the native podcasters out there? Yeah, um, you know, this was a good... uh good overview of our education and Indian education and the timeline, the history and, and what's going on today. And uh, I I wanted to uh, briefly mention, you know, for, for folks listening, if you're a college student, you're looking for any sort of internship, uh, the Crazy Horse Monument has a summer program. And they're, they've been trying to develop the Indian University of North America for some time. But right now, looking at their website, they have a summer and fall program. So you could do a whole uh, term or semester there and earn credits toward your school. And, and it's rooted in Native culture. There's a variety of areas, but it, it's a great program. It's growing. I knew someone in Montana who went through the program, had an amazing summer there. Um just wanted to highlight that because I feel like there's certain ones that don't get recognition or like, hey, this option's out there too. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like the one I did for the BLM was, uh, you know, all Native students in Montana, Native tribe. Right. There's another summer, summer internship 
partnered through the Salish Kootenai College and uh, the BLM uh, to work at Pompey's Pillar, just 30 miles east of Billings, Montana. A great, great experience I had. Um, and it was a native opportunity. Um, and it was while I was a student, I had to be a student. I was, uh, you know, it was a student internship. It was really cool, uh, that they had that actually, and that there are those things out there, um, when you think about it and look out for those opportunities, I guess, cause they're there, you know, always, you know, definitely something to look forward to. Um, again, you could always reach us at gng at gng.net. Matt will respond to you. I don't know how long he'll be. He might take a week or two. That's fine. Um, but thank you for hanging in there with us again. This is a pleasure, uh, talking to you, Matt, and talking to the podcasters with us, uh, about what's going on. Um, just quick, some resources for you. If you want to get more into education, uh, the bie.edu, the Bureau of Indian Education, uh, Intertribal Education Foundation, uh, the Office of Indian Education, uh, also good, great government organizations to go to. I also recommend the Montana Indian Education for All. It's yeah. kind of one of those programs that was started uh, here in Montana to teach native histories to all, all the students in Montana. Um, they're kind of like a leader in that sense uh, for how how those are how that's been um, how it was founded. So definitely look at them. Um, but until next time, we'll see you guys later. On my back, daily drumming when I sing, man, there ain't no way around it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a Native Podcast is produced by Gingy Advertising and Quartz Lake Productions.